inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. And we're two siblings who happen to be blind. Outlook. Outlook. On Radio Western. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Outlook. Another pre-record here. Recording this one on Sunday. How are you doing today, Care? It's kind of interesting timing. We're recording this on a Sunday evening, which I don't know if we've ever recorded an Outlook on a Sunday evening. Why not? Why not, right? We can be flexible now where we're doing some pre-records, some in-studio shows. When this is airing the, the week prior, we were in studio um, doing our mixed bag show. But this week, when this airs, will be April 18th. And Carrie, you've lined up another super interesting guest. I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah, we like to have uh, local guests all the way to international, very international, like today. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to introduce our guest for today on Outlook. Mary Bell Steele, calling from Australia. Hi, Mary Bell. Thanks for coming on Outlook today. Yes. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Brian. I've flown into Toronto today. Really? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, sort of. From my armchair. <laughs> <laughs> we can pretend. We can pretend. Uh, yeah. But no, that's super cool. We had it. We had someone on before from. Well, they they actually had moved to Canada, but they were from New Zealand. But we've never had one, anyone on from Australia yet. So this is uh, this is really cool. A few firsts tonight. It's a first, yes. <laughs> so you're calling in from where in Australia? So I live in beautiful Melbourne, which Melbourne. is, uh, we're in autumn now, so it's getting sort of chilly and autumnal. And uh, we, you know, it's just, oh, yeah, I love living in Melbourne. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, it's My favourite season. With the seasons, yeah, that it's. Start going into spring here. Well, it's still kind of cold here. It's not quite, doesn't quite feel like spring, but it, we're getting there. And then the seasons there are obviously, uh, you know, not not uh, not the same, flipped. but uh, yeah, flipped around. And as, as I yeah. said too, with the with the time, the timing of this, we're recording this on a Sunday evening because it, you know, it's pretty much the only time that would really work would be an evening for us to kind of make it work for your for your timing. So that's right and the funny thing is it's a little like i'm actually talking or speaking to you in your future time <laughs> yeah that's what's interesting yeah we're rec i said we're recording this pre-recording on on april 3rd but it's actually april the 4th where you are so you're in the that's future right yeah or we're in the past or however you want to look at it <laughs> i love that yeah it's pretty neat so we will talk a bit uh, more about Australia and specifically where you're living there. But uh, I thought I would sort of give everybody a, a bit of backstory about how I met you because I've never been to Australia and you've never been, we've been to North America, but um, we'll also get into that in a bit here. Uh, so I believe I came across you in 2014 or so, and I don't even remember now how I found your website. I believe, would it have been Mary Bell Steele? dot com then or was it something else then? Ah, no there was um i think that was through my travel blog wasn't it it was touching yeah. landscapes and you were doing um your your blog the yes. happy wanderer was it the insightful wanderer yeah. oh the insightful wanderer so i think somehow you must have been googling and you found me having a travel blog and that i was blind also right touching landscapes right that's what it was called yeah 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 now is that is that blog still up online 
Yeah, it is. It is. I haven't put anything on it for a while, but it's got gorgeous stories and a few guests. And then Kerry came on and did a um, an, an email interview that we put up there as well. So, yeah, it's like my it's like my blog. I haven't written on that for a while, but it's still up. I think podcasts are taken over from blogs, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how things go in phases and then it seems like... But the thing about it is it's always there, right? And you can always revisit it someday or at least just have it up there for the memories and, the, and uh, yeah. whatever's up there. So, yeah. um, But you do, have a, you do have a really nice website. I checked it out before this interview, maribelsteel.com. That's M-A-R-I-B-E-L-S-T-E-E-L.com. So then I wrote for you and then, you know, we did a bit of that. But then a couple of years later, I got invited through a few people I met who were living in the States uh, to join something called Vision Aware. And then when I showed up, I realized you were part of that also. So uh, sort of explaining about what that is, but how did you get involved with, with, with them? Well, yeah, it is all these connections. And it's just beautiful the way the internet can work. Um, for some reason, I connected with someone there called Audrey Dennett, and she was writing for Vision Aware, and she said, why don't you write to the program manager? And I did, and I had an interview with Chris Rogers at the time. She was managing the site and all the content. And um, I've been writing for them since 2014 as a peer advisor. And Vision Aware is a wonderful organisation that put regular posts and articles all about blindness and rehabilitation and all the things you'd need to know if you're starting to lose your eyesight and eye conditions. And so a group of us write regular posts and they, oh gosh, I don't know how many they put up a month, but we are still meeting monthly to talk about, you know, the next blog posts. I haven't done any for a while, but back in, the, you know, between 2014 and 18, I was um, writing lots of articles and they're just a wonderful bunch. So I highly recommend Vision Aware as a place to go if people need to know more about vision loss. Yeah, and mm -hmm. people can find that at visionaware.org. And if they go on the website and, and look up Mary Bell Steele, um, they can find your, your blog posts that you did put up through, yeah. uh, through Vision Aware. Yeah. Yeah, but they, so they are based in the US. They have a lot of, obviously, um, American writers for them, but they also, like you said, they invite international uh, writers to join them, where, you know, me here in Canada and you. And I believe was Dave, is his name Dave yeah, Steele? Yeah, Dave Steele, who's not a relative. No. Uh, he He's known as the blind poet, and he did write for a while. He's from the UK. Mm -hmm. um, I think they've had people from New Zealand, and so it's a great, great international bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is it so? Is it the American Printing House for the Blind? It's sort of. It is now. It used to be long or run by the American Foundation for the Blind. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to go more into the political arena and advocacy. So a couple of years ago, they reshaped it all and the American Printing House for the Blind took it over. And um, it's really been surging forward. It's, it's really great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, I've had to pull back since uh, from my work with Vision Aware. I've, I wrote for a couple of years with you guys, and then uh, I got involved in a lot of advocacy here in Canada and writing for other publications. And so mm -hmm. I haven't been there attending meetings for a while, but I'm, I still follow what you guys are up to. And it is a great resource, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we will talk about all of that stuff a bit more, uh, but I'd like to hear, obviously, in this hour, too, about what um, the situation is for people who are blind in Australia, because, as I've said, I'd love to travel to Australia one day, and 
you know, it's so far away and I, I don't know when I'll get there, but, um, you know, we really, you know, it's not, you know, that different of a country, obviously, to a lot of the countries here, but uh, things are always done slightly differently. And, uh, but um, let's start by talking about you again a bit more. So you have RP, is that correct? Yes, retinitis pigmentosa. Mm-hmm. And I started to lose my sight in my teenage years. And within two years, my sight had dramatically dropped. So I couldn't read print material. And it came out of the blue. It was sort of difficult for my family to cope with because we didn't realise that it was hereditary and that it was in our family. Um, So it did come out as a shock. And as a 17-year-old, when I was given the label, as I call the label of disabled, I really couldn't handle it. I just felt, no, that's not me. I'm this young girl and I've got all my future and don't tell me I'm going blind. And, you know, I sort of went into denial. Um, but that also gave me resilience. I felt that I wasn't going to just let things, you know, dictate if I had this so-called disability, it wasn't going to be what I was going to focus on. And that's basically how I live my life, you know, and I know that you would know that and Brian would know that. We just don't let it define us. It's, it's more a category that we're placed under. And I think for, for government and people to know, you know, what we might need in terms of resources, but it's certainly not how any of us see ourselves. Yeah, and that's yeah. something we, we mentioned on this show quite a bit is this whole idea that disability is part of, part of who we are, but it's just one, thing, one part of, w- of what we are. And there's so many other characteristics that define us as, as people. And sometimes the disability for a lot of people, or for a lot of the greater society or people that might, may not have a disability, they see that first and they think about that, whereas there's so much more than that. And really, obviously, you know, we're people like anyone else and we have... Yeah, and it, and it trips people up. It's a funny thing because people think, oh, I better not say the wrong thing and, um, oh, sorry, did I, I didn't mean to say look out. Um, oh, and, and then people just start getting nervous. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, we just want to be treated normal. I once heard someone say, it's like if I've got one green finger and I just focus on that one green finger when I've got all these other fingers on my hand that, you know, work and are perfectly fine. So... You know, we just don't focus on that. And um, and I just, I would like people to relax more around disability. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it cre- creates a lot of awkwardness. It seems, yeah, it seems, it seems like some people just sort of naturally get it or they're very, they're, they sort of, they sort of adapt really easily around you and you don't even think about it. But other people kind of do get, there is an awkwardness or a sort of questioning or it's just, it's, just, it's sort of a weird sort of... Uh, vibe sometimes you get from people and it's a lot of it is society and, and just all of these these tropes that we're trying to change here so it's a it's a gradual thing but it's also that balance and it sounds to me like you are a, a very positive person or try to stay very optimistic which is important with all this stuff because you know it's obviously it can be frustrating at times but we also got to have to just you know accept accept and and uh, and figure out a, the best way to educate people and and uh and uh, get the message out there so Yeah, and I think that's also why I started my two blogs, particularly my first one, which was in 2012, and that one's called Gateway to Blindness. And it was really just to, you know, help share a different perspective. And I'm very much about seeing beyond the disability and, you know, and I would say seeing beyond disability to possibility. And that's really what all of us want to do. I just want to have, you know, the same goals and dreams and desires. But what I've learned is that I've got to get around things. I've got to be a bit more problem solving and, um, you know, be more resourceful. 
and find different ways to reach my goals, but it doesn't mean I'm going to let go of the goal. So that's really become from those from that very early age, Kerry, when I was saying about I didn't want it to define me, that's really how I've lived my life. I want to do this and how am I going to go about it? Yeah, possibility, like you say. And when so many people think about, well, if I were to go blind tomorrow, my life would be over. And if you know, as if you know anybody who's blind or if you're listening to this episode now and you're listening to us hear us when we you know talk and say that you know there are, the possibilities are still endless for your life and it doesn't doesn't mean everything's over and far from such a thing uh but no, uh, and i think though i really empathize with that because of yeah. of course if that would happen naturally there is a grieving process yes. and and you, you're going to have to learn and relearn skills but it yeah like you said your life isn't over it's just going to be different and there's just an adjustment period that's got to be faced. And once that's faced and you can move on a little, but it takes time and people will deal with their grief in their own time, you know, about what they've lost uh, in terms of being able to see or drive a car or whatever it might be. But then once you, you know, you've got to get back on the horse and you'll just learn different ways. And there's so much out here now in the land of technology because I'm not sure when you lost your sight, Kerry, but uh, for me, you know, in the 1970s, 80s, we didn't have computers and we didn't have all the things we use today. So you know, I never learned to learn Braille because, um, well, one, I was too stubborn to think I needed to, <laughs> but also now there's got all this technology and audio devices and things called Pen Friend, which I love, and jaws on our computer, you know, so it's just reskilling if you go blind or you start to lose your sight. Yeah, and you were saying a teenager. So when did you first, like, did you know about the diagnosis before your, your teen years or like, because had, you hadn't started driving or anything, had you? No, so no, um, it took about two years. So by the time I was between 15 and 17, they did lots of tests. They couldn't really work out what it was. The specialists couldn't agree until a final diagnosis when I was 17 that it was RP. And then from there it was like, well, sorry, we can't do any more for you. <clears throat> There's no known cure. So basically you'll just have to go off and get supports and see what you can do. And you were mentioning what, how do people are treated in Australia with disability. Back then, and we still have it, I was given a blind pension so it's a certain amount of money that I receive every fortnight from the government as a blind pensioner. But you can imagine, I mean, that it helps. It's not a big amount, but it certainly helps me pay for things. Um, but as a 17, 18-year-old, a, a blind pensioner, that was a very strange concept to come to terms with. But, it, but with funding, that, that's one of the things that we, our government does support people with disability with, some pensions. Yeah, it's a term that you only maybe hear, you know, seniors pension or yeah. <laughs> like I'm just starting my life. It <laughs> might be one of those terms, yeah, that you and it it's it's it brings up another discussion of something that we want to start talking more and more about on this show is here in Ontario we have a, a, a program that, you know, it's called Ontario Disability Support Program, which is the same idea, I imagine, where we get a certain amount every every month from from the government. Um it's not it's not really enough to live, you know, to do everything you might want to do. It's just, um, but it's, it's enough to kind of sort of get by. I mean, maybe not as much these days with rent prices and everything going up so much and inflation and all this stuff. But um, there's just sort of a, some people feel like, 
you know, that that's sort of a, it's a handout and, oh, I shouldn't need that. But at the same point, we also really like to acknowledge on this show that blindness, while it is something that we, we try to, you know, we try to make as, um, as easy as possible and try not to let it affect our lives. In reality, it does affect things to some degree. So it's, I think some, some, pe- some people might feel a little bit like, oh, like I need to, I can't be taking this money. I have to go out and do things. And, and I, I get that. But at the same point, I don't think it's a shame to have to, to take, you know, to have these benefits. And I think it does help so many people. So That's right. And also, um, you know, like you say, you don't want to, you don't want to talk down about the, the small amount that we're given because it does help. But the, the fact is that people with disability and blind people um, are less employed. Our employment options are far less and we have to work really hard to, you know, for an organisation to take us on because they see that blindness as an obstacle. Oh, how much is it going to cost the organisation? Do we have to get all this specialist equipment? You know, like they just start weighing it up in terms of money and how much is this person going to cost us uh, instead of realising that blind people and I would say other people with disability, we are really good problem solvers because we have to problem solve every day. So, you know, if, if there's some problem, then I'd like to be working that out with my employer. You know, how can we do this? How can we do that? And, um, yeah, so that, that pension money certainly goes a long way to help. It doesn't pay, you know, my, I, I need to get jobs as well, but at least, you know, that's there as a backup. So. Um, but the reality is our jobs just they're not you know if you put blindness on your resume that's a tricky one some people say why should I put my disability on my resume because they might not even look at me if I do that Um, and some people won't disclose that they've got a disability on their resume they want to get to the interview stage but I can't get away with that because I've got things like you know blindness for beginners and um, gateway to blindness <laughs> so I sort of yeah I put it on my resume but um, that is an interesting thought isn't it like do you disclose your um, disclose your disability to get a job and then turn up with your guide dog <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's harder with certain people with invisible disabilities. It's it's easier to sort of, well, when do I want to reveal this? It'll come out eventually if I'm working somewhere long enough, mm. you know, or I might need some, you know, accommodations here or there, but it's not the same. You, you can walk into the room and not automatically be so conspicuous about it. But it's yeah. like, yeah, it's like anytime you do any work, I mean, we get, we're afraid to take any kind of job, even volunteer work or any kind of advocacy work that, around disability because you're going to want to maybe use that to help you get jobs in the future, but then you're afraid to use it on your resume to scare people off from even, you know, setting up an interview. So it's kind of a yeah, catch. So well, I think my, my advice is just be yourself. You know, there's no, I wouldn't be hiding it. I don't feel, you know, the, the employees need to know this. It's all education. I'm really big on advocacy and education. So, you know, why hide it? Just get out there and, and let people know, wow, there's a blind person applying for this job. That could be interesting. You know, it could have that other effect on people. And yeah. I think while that ties into, of course, sometimes, you know, feeling judged or, you, you know, they might not take you as seriously, but it also comes down, I think, to what you were touching on earlier, but when you lost your sight originally, and it's this acceptance that I think a lot of people have do have difficulty accepting that. And it's totally understandable. I mean, for me, it's a bit of a different situation. You mentioned earlier when wondering when Carrie lost her vision, but 
we were both born blind. Um, Carrie used to be able to see more than me, though. She had a bit more light perception, where I, I can see light and dark, but that's it. So I've always been that way. So I've never really had to deal with that acceptance. Of course, there's days and times when it's difficult, but overall, it's always been that way for me. So I'm, acceptance for me isn't quite the same, I don't think, as it, as it might have been for, for you, Mary Bell, mm. and then in, the, in the case of my sister here as well. Mm. Yeah, and that's right. And it's and it's harder for people who go through all their life and get to sixty, and then they're losing their sight because they have driven a car and they have read newspapers. So it's just a different adjustment phase that they've got to go through. Yeah, for sure. Well, as as we talk about positivity and things and the possibilities, you know, there is such thing as 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 um, toxic positivity is the term, right? That dis people with disabilities, blind people. We're, we're this inspirational thing to, to, to some people and, you know, we're expected to be that and, you know, we, we have our good days and our bad days, but like you said, um, it's a line you got to walk, but as far as the fact is that when you do start to lose your sight, there is a grieving process and it's a little harder for someone like me who my vision's been sort of a little bit uh, unstable for years and years so it's just when i start to get a handle on it it starts to change a little bit again so that can make it difficult what would you tell people who are maybe at that early phase where grieving is an important part of it that you do have to go through a grief process first what was that like for you like you said it was hard what was it like for you and then what was it like for people in your life well that's the thing um you don't just feel the grief for yourself i think you feel a grief for your family because for me, anyway, I thought, well, if I go blind and I lose my sight, it just makes it harder for the people around me. And so I was worried for them as well as for myself. Um, and also I, I became a mother and I had four children uh, while I still was quite vision impaired. I mean, as I've gone through, you know, I'm up now in early 60, um, so it's progressively got worse. But during my 20s and 30s, I still wasn't really telling people. I wasn't using a white cane and my children could help me see and we did lots of things together and I would say they were my eyes doing things, you know, to help me around the house. But I felt embarrassed and I felt like, you know, I don't want to tell the mothers at school that I can't see because does that affect my child? So there's a, it's quite complicated and, you know, it can be not just for yourself that you grieve or feel maybe a sense of shame and that shame, I think, comes from society um, that, you know, we put on ourselves that, oh, it's not very dignified to, to walk, you know, with your hands out in front of you and you get these images of blind people fumbling and walking into doors or falling down train stations and things, you know. It's, um, there's a lot of false imagery, I think, that, that makes us feel bad. So uh, the grieving, I would say, is different for everyone. But I know for a fact that the moment you can really accept, okay, this is what I've got, I have to work with it now. So it's always while we're fighting against it that we have our, our sadness and our regret and our upset and our shame because we, I like to say it's like, you know, the waves. You're either going to ride the wave and go with it. This is what you have now. This is the diagnosis. Let's see what's out there to help me. Or you're going to push against the wave and, you know, it's going to pick you up and throw you down and, and drown you and you're just going to feel awful if you're struggling to accept. So 
for me, number one is when you can accept what it is and start talking to people because we can really talk round and round in circles in our own head and we can listen to lots of negativity inside our own thoughts. But if you were to speak to someone who goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to do that, but but look, this is what I do now. I have a phone that I can talk to and it does my messages. And you go, oh, really? Yeah, you don't have to use your eyes to use your phone. So there's all sorts of things that people will learn if they start talking to other people. So that's my, I think, my number one thing is accept what you've got now and, and then next is find support that's going to really help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was interesting. Yeah. I was reading a, about a, a keynote address that you gave for the Association of Vision Rehabilitation <laughs> Therapists. That's work, Brian, haven't and, you? <laughs> and you did a really neat uh, comparison with, I guess, so we're going to get into this throughout, uh, later on in the episode today because cooking is something we haven't talked about enough on this show, and I know that it's something that you love to do. Um, so this is where you, you use my, your ingredients to create a happiness pie, is what you call it, for people learning how to live with vision loss. And... You know, the ingredients you list are acceptance, cooperation, courage, organize the chaos, humor, sensibility, kindness, and then your own ingredients added in there as well. I just thought that was a really neat sort of breakdown of, of all of these different things that we, we can kind of do to really adjust and, and fit in and, and be able to move on in life and not let blindness kind of hold us back. And you also briefly mentioned your book there earlier, which we will also get into um, that, that you wrote, Blindness for Beginners, which also outlines so many tips and examples and, and just so many great things that, yeah, so many people have originally when they might lose vision feel like their life is over, they can't do this and that, and so many different things. But really, there are ways to do things, and it takes a lot of patience and, and time, but there is, there's definitely a way to move on. And, 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 you know, when you can look at different ways of doing things, You'll be surprised at the way life takes you because, for instance, you know, I've started out maybe I wanted to be a visual artist. I love drawing and, you know, drawing pictures and colour were really important to me. But now what I do is I've just transferred that passion to writing and I say that I now paint with words and I like to create stories. So instead of feeling that I've missed out by not being able to draw, I now write And other people, for instance, might, um, you know, take up flower arrangement because that's something that they've always wanted to do but never have. And yet now if they're going blind, they can do it because they can feel, they can really put their mind to it, just all sorts of things. Like so, you know, life will take you in different directions and we none of us can live this charming life. You know, we, we do have challenges and that's it. Some people have a disability as their challenge. Other people have financial challenges or relationship challenges. We've all got to deal with something. So I would just, I used to say there's an art in being blind as well. And that's basically just ride it, go with it, learn what you can do, master your skills and um, and just start looking at other things you'd really like to do and how you're going to do it. Like I actually would like to do flower arrangement. Um, and you also mentioned cooking. Cooking is something that really astounds me. People will say, I was standing in a supermarket one day buying ingredients and a lady said to me, um, so so who cooks for you at home? Because she's looking at all me. I'm, well, I do. What, you cook for your family? Yes, I do. But what about knives and, and all these? And she had all these questions, you know. And I just thought, 
just because I've lost my sight doesn't mean I have to stop doing all these things that I enjoy. I just do it differently. I take a bit more care in, you know, peeling things or sharp knives, chopping things. Uh, it doesn't mean you stop. And um, actually cooking if you're when you're vision impaired is wonderful because it's using all your other senses. So, you know, you can really delight in tastes and fragrance and texture and all those wonderful things. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily encourage someone to do that, you know, the kind of thing people do for social media, a blindfold challenge, and then just, you know, whip out a knife and start chopping away. But it's like, it's funny to me that knives are, when you cut something, you know, it's something you kind of do tact tactily. You feel, you know, you can pull, put, put your hand on, where the, on the piece of food, hold to the knife, and then just be thoughtful and careful as you do it. And there's no reason, you know, all blind people would be without fingers if, if it was such a big thing. But that's one of the things is, oh, my God, knives and hot stoves. And, and there are so many ways around stuff like that. It was just interesting because I think it was on maybe a TV channel or something. I saw a video cooking blind in Studio 10 with Mary Bell yes. Steele. And the, the, the description for it says right away, how on earth with sharp knives and hot saucepans do you manage in the kitchen? So it's just that very extreme just like. And again, I think there's and you also know, it was really funny. Do you know it was funny, Brian? There was two sighted women standing next to me from the show host, you know, and they're saying, "Well, how can we help you?" And I'm trying to chop up, and a woman's picked up the um, sausages that we chopped up, and she threw it into the pan and missed, and it went all over the bench. <laughs> so like, <laughs> she's sighted. So and it's also you know. possible it creates that. I think it creates a bit of that awkward nervousness sometimes in people when they're around and they see see that type of things happening. So maybe she was. Also not fully focused because of that, but it also proves that, you know, just just because somebody is blind or not, like anyone can, anyone would make mistakes in the kitchen anytime and it can happen to anyone. And then... Exactly. Yeah. And you just, you don't put your finger, you know, you hold your fingers a certain way. And the other thing is you can get other devices. You can get an, an onion chopper. If you don't want to be chopping onions, you grab this particular device, just you put the onion in, you chop, 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 no fingers involved. And, you know, so again, that's my theory of find another way around it if you don't want to use a sharp knife get an onion chopper and um you know get your family involved if you want to so there's there's always ways around uh and you say you have you have four children is that right so well i did i mean they don't live with me now so yeah mm -hmm. they're all grown up but yes i did have four kids yeah, so that's that definitely busy <laughs> definitely something else we're we're going to want to get into here because it's another thing Kara, that oh. we we haven't talked about on this show enough about blind parents. Carrie and I aren't, aren't parents ourselves or brother and sister, and neither of us have been married or anything like that. So it's a whole other topic that we want to talk about more. But for anyone who has just tuned in, who has been listening, you are tuned into Outlook here today on Radio Western or in future as a podcast. We are speaking with Maribel Steele from Melbourne, Australia, speaker, freelance writer, mentor, educator, so many things. And we're going to take a quick break now on Outlook, but we'll be right back with more on Radio Western. Outlook. On Radio Western. Welcome back to Outlook today. We are speaking today with Maribel Steele from Melbourne, Australia. And we were talking about a bunch of stuff in the first half, and I guess we've seen a few connections between all of us. And, uh, you know, you were saying before the break, Maribel, that you used to be into visual art and then you sort of switched to writing, which I've sort of done a pivot that same in that same way, um, just like that. But uh, but you, you also have a connection to music, which is what Brian's always been more into. 
Um, so we'll ask you a bit about that. But first, I did mention you had four children, and so now you have grandchildren. What 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 kind of tricks and things did tips did you come up with for yourself when you were raising your children about um, how to best yeah. be a mother? Yeah. Well, interesting, you know, that children grow up in their families and everything's normal. In that particular family, life is normal. That's how mm -hmm. it is. So I found that with my children, having a vision impaired mother was just a normal way of life. Uh, and so we were we had to be more organized than maybe other families in that if my children wanted to play with their Lego, we would put a blanket down on the floor in the lounge room and that would be like a pontoon where they would play. And I knew that if I was walking, I wouldn't, you know, I would step around that. So it was just more organization, things in their place, chairs being tucked in, children knowing that they had to, um, you know, be my eyes when crossing the road. So we would hold hands and they'd look and you know, I would train them to, to know when to cross and to really just be safe and looking for bus names. And when they could read, we would read things together. Um, but I really love doing tactile things with them. So I did lots of, we did puzzles because, you know, we, I could feel pieces and um, I would write on the backs of the pieces as well in a big, thick text pen, the number of the puzzle piece, so that when they weren't looking, I'd have give it a quick flick over and go, oh, right, that's number seven, that's got to fit in here. <laughs> so, you know, and then I couldn't read, I struggled to read books because I was using a magnifying glass and it was quite slow. And then we ended up just, I would make up stories and that could have been in the 80s where I started to really, you know, start telling stories because my children and I would then just make up our own stories and I found that just wonderful because we were playing with both our imaginations and and it just freed me up from feeling bad that I couldn't read to them um, but then my my father and stepmother would read books onto tape we would have cassettes and then they could follow along the book with their tape as well so you know it's just one thing after another different but still achieving what you need to do in terms of educating your child. And, um, you know, I would have scrapbooks and collect things and stick them in the books so I would knew we'd do an alphabet book of their own so I knew that this particular postcard was maybe a zebra, so obviously that's, you know, Z. And it was just adapting, always adapting, and they just naturally adapted. It wasn't a big deal. Um, it only got a big deal when they were teenagers and maybe they didn't want to hold my hand to cross the road, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, so, uh, which is fine. And, um, yeah, it just became this thing that, that you know, mummy can't see and that was fine. And I would then just get other people to take the children to maybe sports or, you know, you just organise things like that. So, but definitely an organised world where things had to be put back in their place. That was a really important thing for my children to learn. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. And like we talk about all the time with our own siblings is like, that's all they knew that they had two blind siblings. And so it wasn't anything that was just how it always was for mm. them. So that I assume is the same with your own children. Just, yeah. I mean, it's, they, they talk about occasionally some kids at school or someone would ask like, what's it like to have a blind brother and sister? And they're like, uh, I don't know. Like, what's it like to have a sighted blind sister and brother? Like it's, you know, it's just natural, normal. So it's the way it's always yeah, been. That's right. Yeah. So of course, technology has come a long way and the tools we've used and, uh, use currently. So, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've come across a lot of tools that you've seen sort of change over the years and, uh, 
so one of the things we brought, talked about before the break was this thing called a pen friend. Do, do you want to explain? Because even Brian and I aren't quite sure. We've heard of, heard of talk, the people talk about them. We don't even really know what exactly it is. Okay, so it's um, it's almost like holding a, a handheld microphone. So it's, it's like a microphone. It's about six inches long. It's a long plastic device, and it's got a mic at the top and a pointy end at the bottom. And basically, it's an audio labelling system. So I actually have it in front of me right now, and it's so easy to use. And what it's used for is basically identifying things in the house, but also you could take it with you in your handbag. And, for instance, if I wanted to get someone's phone number, I would put one end on a sticker, so you get a whole lot of stickers, and the pen friend Basically, it's, I think it's like um, some, you know, barcoding system. When you point the pen friend onto the sticker, you record. And then when you point it back onto the sticker, letting go of the record button, it reads it back to you instantly. So, for instance, I've got it here right now, and I mark all my spice jars, for instance, in my kitchen because, like we said, I'm fond of cooking. I have many, many spice jars, so I'm going to pretend I'm labelling a spice jar. You ready? So mm -hmm. I'm now pressing the record button, and on the sticker it goes, mint leaves. I've let go of the record button, and I'm going to play it back. Mint leaves. Did you get that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm out and about, I might say, okay, here's his button on. 0417-755-413. Right? That's quicker than putting it into my phone. Hmm. Oh, well, see, technology. That's yep. the fun yep. thing too, yeah. You so. know what? You know what? I think the battery has just run out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got one really, we got one good example. Okay. In well, there, you got so. one. That's good. But anyway, so um, it is fantastic because it's just that quick, it's a memo pad, isn't it? It's like a quick audio memo pad, but you can put it on your CD collection. You know, you sort of, oh, for us, you've got to get the CD out, put it on and discover, no, that's not the one I want. But you could put all the stickers on each each individual CD or I have mine in collection. So I have French music, Spanish music, um, you know, instrumental, <clears throat> and I keep them in a category and then I just have one sticker for that whole category. Um, so you, people can use it on their medication bottles, you, there's also stickers now that are washable so you can use to label your clothing. You know how people often ask us, how do you know what you're wearing? Well, apparently there are ones that you can now put on clothing that will go through the wash. I have, haven't tried that one yet, but that would be very handy. And naturally, you know, someone at the beginning would need to tell you what it is, but once you record that, you know, it could be you mark your jewellery, it could be whatever you want. They're just, you know, the... Um, it, the possibilities are endless. So that's called a pen friend. I don't think it's very expensive. In Australia, they're around $300, but I've had mine for several years and you can reuse the stickers. So you get, I don't know, I think maybe a 1,000 stickers to start with and you can always buy more stickers. Um, but they are reusable and you can dub over them. So that pen friend is something that has, in my recent years, been a new, that's my friend. It's something that I use quite a lot. And like you'd mentioned earlier, you you know you don't you don't read Braille, so there's there's so many alternatives, and that's why out there we want to have so many different options because you know some people might be Braille readers and might prefer that, but if if you're not, then 
you know, or there's just, there's different, and in some ways this is faster, you know, with Braille, sometimes you have to Braille it out and, and label it and all that, whereas here you can just quickly say it. So it's just, they have so many different devices now that do similar things, but, you know, make it accessible for everyone. And that's just, that's what's so great about it all, so. And the other thing, as a writer, you know, when you get an idea and you want to write it down quickly, you've just got this, ah, oh, that's what the character's going to say. But I, I can't dash to a pen. It's not going to work for me. So I can actually have that in my bag and quickly record that onto a sticker, and then I can write that in my computer later. So it's it's very handy. Yeah, it's like a pen and a microphone all in one recording yep. device. Nice. Yep, yep. So um, I think we maybe heard a dog in the background. Is that a guide dog or is that a, a family pet? No, she's a definitely, well, she was being a pet then when she was barking. Well, but yeah. I, have, yeah, I have a beautiful guide dog called Dindy and uh, we've been together for about two years um, and she is amazing. I've had two guide dogs now. Ugh, the way she's changed my life and, you know, my independence and my, sense of confidence when I'm out with her because my vision has now dropped considerably. She's just stoic, calm, you know, curious, and we just, I just love working with her. She's amazing. And then when we're home, she just wants to be with me all the time. And, you know, that companionship is just beautiful. So, yep, I love my guide dog. She's amazing. So does she understand that you're doing an interview right now? <laughs> well, she She's locked out of my room. <laughs> Could be why she's barking. And so, where do you get a guide dog over there? Um, how far? How, how far? Like, did you have to travel far to get to the school, or how does it work? No, over we there? have we have um, an association called the Guide Dogs Guide Dogs Victoria, and there's Guide Dogs Australia. They're all around Australia as well, and they are not that far away. Maybe a forty minute ride drive away and when I went to do my training I had to stay in their um, accommodation quarters for about three weeks uh, to train with her and to be with the trainers and that was also they we saved time in travel and and they can see that we're bonding and all that so there were five people in my group when we were learning and um, three black guide dogs and um, it was funny because they were in the car one time with our trainer when we're going out on a walk and he had the three black dogs in the back and he's going, okay, now work out which is yours. <laughs> I'm like, oh, hang on, I'm feeling, no, I don't know about that nose, is a bit long, I'm not sure. Anyway, so I'm trying to locate because they're all licking our hands, you know, like, oh, hello, hello, hello. And so I, I think I found the, well, I found her, I said, I think this is Dindy, is that right? And he goes, yes. And I said, how would you have done it? And he said, I would have said banana because I know she likes bananas. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so um, I had a great, great time training. It was a lot of fun. And she seriously is, is a, a very special dog. I know we all say that about our guide dogs. They are all beautiful and special, but I, I guess it's just that they've matched us really well. So my team work with her is just beautiful. Yeah. It doesn't always work out, but when it does, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys have guide dogs? We've, we've each had one actually, but not, not in a long time. So we've, we've only had one and we don't have one right now, either of us. Um, yeah. We each got one for high school. So that was a long time ago. I mean, my, my dog retired now, I guess, 12 or 13 years ago and, and passed away um, a few years back now. But yeah, so we both each had one, but I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a tricky decision. I was going to kind of ask a bit about that. Like you talked about, you know, growing up or when you were, 
your kids were growing up and stuff and them helping you across the street. So how did that translate from there to getting a guide dog in the sense that did you did you have training with the white cane as well? Or were you did you kind of like, how did, how did that go? Only a little bit. So, yeah, I did realise when my kids were at school, they were much older and I was, you know, uh, actually I'd qualified as an aromatherapist. So that was my first career after motherhood um, that I then had a practice and I needed to get to my practice. And I just thought, I'm not feeling so confident now. I need to have some mobility. And I got a white cane, but I felt a bit embarrassed to use it. I did use it a little bit. But it just happened on one day when I really felt, oh, my God, I am not coping with this. And I just rang the Guide Dog Association. Uh, the story is in my book, which are, which we will discuss before we leave. But it basically talks about how I had to, to it took a long time to accept this help. But when I did go to Guide Dogs Victoria, it changed my life. And so then I started to train with the, my first guide dog back in 2000. And that's when I also learnt all sorts of things. I became a public speaker. I took my guide dog to educate nurses in aged care. So many things transformed my life when I stepped out with that independence. So although I did have a white cane, I didn't use it proficiently. And after my guide dog died, the first one, like you, it was about 12 years before I came to have my second one. Um, but that's when I really got confident with my white cane. I used it all the time. But it was only in 2017 when I thought, mm, I'm feeling a bit, I'm, I'm overstepping the mark, I'm missing the shops I want to get to, I'm now in the wrong place. And I just thought, this is going to be easier with another pair of eyes. And that's why I decided to get my second guide dog. Yeah, dogs are not right for everybody and they're not right for, for everybody at certain times in your life. And mm -hmm. so you just got to find what works for you. And um, sounds like you've, you know, found it and you found each other, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because they, you know, they talk about obviously having, having some, some travel skills and stuff before getting a dog. But at the same time, a dog can also help with that, that confidence. And we've, we've touched on that with some other guests on this show before about the acceptance of, of the white cane and that it, it can be a hard thing to, to, to deal with for a while. And, and the fact is, you know, having a, having a guide dog comes with its own responsibilities, but at the same time, it does, I th it's been so long now, it's hard to almost imagine what it's like. And I have gotten, like you kind of commented after your first dog, where you got more and more confident with the white cane is I've been very confident with that since my guide dog. So it's hard to imagine, but at the same point, there is definitely a certain, you know, obviously you still need to know where you're, where you're telling the dog to go, but you, ha you can probably think a bit less than when you're with a cane. You really have to focus and pay attention Absolutely. to find that exact door okay. of a store, yeah. for example, whereas a guide dog does remember that specific landmark. As long as you take them to that area, they, they would find it. So yeah. it, you it do definitely... feel a little bit more on cruise mode. You know, you think, right, I know we're in the right street. I'll just let my dog guide the way here. Uh, and I think we're going to turn left soon. Yep, that's right. We turned left now. You know, so you do cruise a little bit more. And that's what I think I like about working with her, that although I am still thinking where we're going, she's making some decisions, which then I go, yep, I agree. This is right. And then we, we you know, go ahead and do that. But with my white cane, I was hitting more doorways and block entrances and and then spinning around and going, oh, now I don't know where I am. So, you know, mm. like you say, Kerry, it's definitely a personal choice. And I think different things work in different eras of our life too because now I won't be without a guide dog. I want to go after her, which will be a while hopefully. I will definitely be going with another guide dog. 
Yeah, I've heard people who've had six or more, and it's just uh, it's yeah. it's amazing to me. Um, but I like that cruise control. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good way to put it. <laughs> so in 2018, that was right around I think when I sort of stopped, pulled away a bit from Vision Aware. Um, you came to the States to attend a leadership conference. And was that right when your book came out, uh, Blindness for Beginners? Yeah, so I went to the conference in April in 2018. I spoke about disability in Australia, and it was about the, it's called the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So I was sharing basically how, how people with disability are funded here in Australia. So that's what the talk was about. And also as a Toastmaster, I did a few talks over in California as well while I was there. So that was fabulous. So I can put that on my resume. <laughs> uh, but then it was later that year. I had, I had my, draft, my book in draft, but it was only when I came back that I seriously got writing for about the next six months. And honestly, the number one tip is you have to sit at your desk every single day no matter what, because you'll find lots of excuses. And I made myself right. I absolutely made myself right from like 7 a.m. till 10, 10 a.m. As a, as a, you know, absolute must, but often it was more than that. And then in December, I was able to publish very proudly, Blindness for Beginners, A Renewed Vision of the Possible. And I'm very proud of this book. Um, it's a three-part series. It's sort of like... Uh, well, not three-part series, it's got three sections. It's a memoir of how I lost my sight and how I accepted it. Then the second part is my tips and what people need to know about adjusting to vision loss. And I like to talk also about developing our sense of humour is very important as one of the senses. And then in part three, it's for sighted people who are maybe working with or have someone in their family who's going blind and just the common questions they get asked or we get asked and things that they might want to know, uh, you know, just tips for sighted people. So it's sort of like a three-part book and um, that's on Amazon and in Audible now. So it's actually, you can actually buy it on Audible as well. Oh, it's an audiobook. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, but it's just not in the uh, the National Library in America yet. I haven't because you've got to give, you know, you've got to give them your book. And um, I think I was waiting to see if I could sell a few copies, but I, I, it is in the UK, uh, in the UK library, but I think I should be now donating it to Australia and America because I do want people to read it. And what kind of, what kind of reception had you gotten from it then? Kind of- oh, well, when it first came out, that's when all these, these inter- invites to, you know, come on Sydney TV and show us how you cook and because one of the chapters called Cooking in a Tactile Kitchen and it's all about how to organise your kitchen if you want to retain cooking. And so radio picked it up and I was on national radio and I was on podcasts and I was in the UK book show and it was like, yay, this is great. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, I had to promote, you know, when you, like, you know, when you're doing your own podcasts, you have to be everything. I'm my own PR, my publicist, you know, marketing manager, blogger, writer, um, interviewer. So, you know, it's, you've got to do everything. But I did, at least having a book helped me get onto a wider radar, and that's what I was hoping. And then that's also led me to more speaking engagements. So one of the things that you wanted to ask was about my speaking, but I actually now go and do school presentations, 
where I talk to children about what it's like to, to walk in my shoes for a day. And I take Dindy and my guide dog and obviously they, I mean, she's the star of the show. You know, they don't want to hear me. They just want to look at the dog and pat the dog. Um, but we talk about guide dogs and what they can do. And then at the very end, I take her harness off and she's allowed to meet the children, which is a, my special thing. But I just love talking with children because that's where the education is. If you can be educating the younger generation, it saves all those awkward moments we were talking about before when we're, when we're dealing with adults. that They obviously haven't come across people who are blind. And so if you're educating at the primary school level, they're just wonderful and they ask questions that adults won't ask because they don't have the same inhibitions. So I had a child the other day say, what's you know what's the best thing about being blind I thought wow that's an interesting question and another one is how do you eat (laughs) and how do you know what you're wearing but the best one was do they send blind people to war oh wow yeah wow (laughs) that's deep (laughs) yeah yeah deep um but they you know they like to ask about what's it like to work with a guide dog and you know so educating children is just a beautiful thing to do. And that's one of the things that I also do. Yeah, Brian, and I did a, a bunch of talks back when we had guide dogs, same sort of thing, different schools. And it's mm. like whether you're talking about, you know, Holocaust education or, you know, disabilities, if you talk to children at a certain age, you can really get them um, to understand things early enough so that, you know, it, that will last all their lives, something mm. like that will stick with them. Yeah. Yeah, education is so important and just as many of us that that talk about this stuff and educate the better and it's something we got to balance. You can't be doing it all the time because it can be exhausting, but at the same point it's it's so important and it can it can also be so rewarding as you've just demonstrated with the examples and the questions that are asked and and the uh the interest that 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 kids generally take to to things like that and um, one other thing I thought I wanted to end on here we're rounding out here we're speaking today with Mary Bell Steele from Melbourne, Australia. Um, one other thing I just thought I'd mention, something kind of happy here, and we're we're going into spring here in Canada, so it's a bit different here, but that I read that you're also interested in uh, in gardening, and I wanted to know a little bit about that. It's something that I've thought about myself one day, and I'm kind of curious how that oh, works for well, you. It's, it's great, especially when you're vision impaired, because... You know, it's so tactile and I have always grown a garden. Um, I love vegetables, but I really love fragrant flowers because, you know, you pass by, you can just crush a piece of lavender or rosemary. It's not that hard. And, again, like everything, it's developing techniques that work. So if you have a little bit of vision, what I tend to do is put white pots at certain places. So there could be like an upside down white bucket, for instance, uh, near a set of steps so that I'm aiming for that as a beacon. You know, I also have fake flowers in my garden that might be white, like white daisies, because they will help me navigate to a certain part of the garden. You know, so it's just... um, and also, isn't that great? Because you don't have to water them and they're always flowering. <laughs> yeah, I can start uh, a, a, one with fake flowers tomorrow, <laughs> I guess, right? Yeah. And, and a funny story, when we've been camping and we've been in amongst lots and lots of tents, I've used fake flowers to put at the bottom of our tent peg because there's no way I was going to know which tent was, was ours. And I would look for this little bunch of white daisies. So I go, oh, yep, there we go. That's, that's our tent. So, um, you know, they, they work for me as beacons. But gardening, you know, there's the gorgeous reward of, of being able to grow herbs, I would recommend, is the first thing to start with. 
They're easy. You can keep them in pots, which means they can be closer to you. I've started to now grow a few more things indoors as my site's fading. I want to bring the garden indoors. And, um, but, but herbs are beautiful because you just run your hands through them, the basil and the mint. You know, you can tell what they are straight away. Uh, so growing a fragrant garden is very important to me. And, um, and then there's just such a beautiful thing to pick, to harvest potatoes. You just put your hand in the soil and you go, oh, there's a potato. It's like a gold nugget. And um, it's very satisfying. And also it gives me a time in the, the garden gives me solace. So I do a lot of head stuff. I'm always writing. I'm on my computer. Yeah. But when I'm in the garden, my head just goes, ah, listen to the birds, smell that rose. Oh, I'm going to plant over here. And I go a bit slower and I just forget about stuff. And so it's a very tranquil, meditative thing to do, especially when we went into COVID. I found that I was doing a lot more in my garden. It became a sanctuary. And so I was, you know, growing a lot more things. Things could get delivered to my home. And creating your own oasis when you're stressed, having your own garden is just a really good health benefit. So I would encourage you to start growing some herbs. You're in spring. You're lucky. You can yeah, get some thinking. Yeah. Really, really nice things happening. And um and then you enjoy that and you give it to friends and you can make lavender bags. You dry the lavender, you put them in your drawers and, you know, it's very rewarding. So, yeah, I love gardening too. Yeah, I'm really into lavender these days. I do. I find it very calming. So, yeah, yeah that sounds nice. Yeah. It. And as you said, your work as a, with aromatherapy and things, it sort of all comes back to the same. Ties together. That's right. Yep. Yeah, well, yeah, you do so much. Yeah, you cook and you're gardening and uh, you're writing. And uh, and I, I assume, you know, confidence, you've gotten confidence from all the speaking work you've done. And uh, yeah, speaking is something I really enjoy. And I also give workshops to writers about speaking because as writers, we, we know how important it is to choose the right words in our print. But Often authors are not very good to be interviewed because they're doing lots of ums and ahs and, I don't know, they talk around in circles. And so I've, I've sort of tried to get a bit of a niche for myself where I'm helping authors and, and creatives speak a little better in public speaking to promote their books. So that's another new little area I'm going into. So, you know, every year I seem to just develop another little branch on my tree if we, you know, if you will, like all the different things I do is just part of my tree. And uh, I like to, to try that and then try something else. And yeah, it's, it's been, you know, blindness is not, it's not what I thought it was. So blindness for me now today is fun, and I can really enjoy it. And I just feel joyful. And my blindness doesn't stop me, it just made me go in a different direction. So I, I'm happy with all the people that I meet and the kindness that I get from strangers to help me. And, and you know, I get a beautiful guide dog to work with. So there's, there can be benefits. That's what I like to also pass on today. Thanks so much for, for coming on Outlook today. Mary Bell Steele wrote the book Blindness for Beginners, which you should definitely look up. And you can find Mary Bell online on her website. MaryBellSteel.com, M-A-R-I-B-E-L, Steel.com. Thanks for talking to us all the way from Australia. 
Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you. It's gone so quickly. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Outlook CFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.